0: Welcome to all of us to this day. Um, my name is Sarah. I'm one of the priests and Dharma teachers here. I use the pronouns she and her, and I think the gender binary is a violent oppression. But and I use she and her pronouns. I'm working on what that's all about. Yeah. So welcome to this place. I um, as I was walking here in today, I was like. A lot of my adult life I've spent in dharma centers, dharma practice places, monasteries and different dharma centers, and um, it's kind of a normal thing for me on a Saturday morning to go to dharma center, (laughs) very routine, uh, very uh, familiar, and somehow, though, I, I feel lucky that it struck me, like, what an awesome thing that there are places in the world there are locations in the world that we've designated like here's a spot and a time and what's so cool about the boundless mind temple which is this what we call the city temple part of Brooklyn Zen center is now part of um you know we, we meet in christ church or we meet in this shared space but in this time on saturday mornings we this we make this space to come together and take up the dharma and and i just was really feeling like what a lucky thing you know and what a and what a what a treasure in the world, and, and it's not actually something to take for granted. Um, the Dharma, there are lots of teachings in Buddhism about the decay and the decline of Dharma from the lifetime of Shakyamuni. There are cycles actually of Dharma. So, Buddhas are born into the world, and you could say they maybe that maybe Shakyamuni is, you know, a good example, and also maybe Buddhas are born constantly. So, don't get too literal but like their Shakyamuni Buddha, that person teaches and their life and their karma and their teaching ripples out and then it, but then it starts to decline. And I used to be like, oh, that's terrible. So there's an idea of Mapo or the age of decline, which um, since like the 1200s, people have been like, this is the age of decline. So we don't have to worry. Like, even though we know we're in the age of decline, (laughs) it's everybody thinks they're in the age of decline. Um, and I used to worry about it but now but actually what's cool about declining about the dharma like eroding is that um there's that's one of the conditions for a new buddha being born. So we're okay. <laughs> <laughs> Even if we're really messing up. <laughs> Not really. I mean and also all the time you know people human beings who are like really making strong efforts toward liberation. Um the different circumstances of our lives, and I say our meaning all of us, like teach us about reality and teach us about wisdom, and, and we have an inclination to live from that wisdom that our lives give us. You know. um, what I wanted to offer today is um, an idea of, of an orientation to, to help us when we feel confused about like, well, is this the right path or is that the right path? And the orientation I want to offer just to try on is is healing. So is the thought I'm having or is the action I'm doing or whatever whatever's happening, if we feel confused about it, we can ask the question like, well, is this moving in the direction of healing? And particularly, um, is it moving in the direction of healing the delusion of being separate? And I'll say more about that. Or is it deepening that wound? Is it, is it digging that, um, injury deeper? Is this thought I'm having separating me from the world or connecting me to it? And in that, in that connection, I, one of the things that's come to my heart lately is when I, when I can engage with connection, I, it feels like it's healing a lot of momentum uh, of karma that, that tells me I'm separate. And that tells me other people are separate. Um, about a year ago, I had the gifts of of this quote floating, being someone showing me this quote from Adrian Marie Brown that says, "We need to flood the systems with life affirming practices and policies." And it just, and that just like um, really impacted me. And for that last year, actually, that's been a guide in any given moment. So is this thought life-affirming? Is, is this action life-affirming? I don't remember to do this all the time, by the way. <laughs> Mostly I forget. Um, but in terms of my practice, that question um, was, has really been um, orienting and, and sort of building on that. Now I have this orientation of um, is, is this healing the delusion of separation or is it deepening it? <clears throat> um, the founder of Soto Zen in, in the 1200s in Japan, Dogen Zenji, says, and the Genjo Koan, to describe this thing about separation, he says, to carry yourself forward and experience myriad things as delusion. So when I am coming from an orientation of like, I'm moving myself forward into the world and I'm doing stuff and that's what's happening, that's the reality, that's delusion, And then he offers, or you know, one translation of what he offered is that myriad things come forth and experience themselves is awakening. So we can just try that on. What happens when we come from the orientation of like, oh, stuff's arising, oh, including me, including the thing I think of as myself. Everything actually, everything is coming forward and arising and experiencing it itself or themselves. Buddhism essentially is a practice that addresses suffering, I think, or I think it's a good description. Like It's, it's a practice engagement to try to deal with the suffering in this world, in the human world, in our world. Um, actually, the realm of desire is the world we live in. And that suffering, or, or a lot of, ways you could look at it that suffering is one of its 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 deepest taproot is the delusion of things being isolated from one another separate from one another and i feel like this particularly afflicts humans maybe afflicts other beings um and when and when you look at it and people have looked at this um this isn't just my opinion like this suffering of a sense of self that's separate from other things um even though the flavor of that is different depending on different cultures like so so i was i'm i'm white american female acculturated in the, i grew up in the united states um, to me the culture i grew up in has like amplifies this a lot with individualism separation isolation and there's a lot of reasons for that uh, i would say particularly like patriarchal capitalism and racism being baked into the culture isolates people or that's my experience and, and, um, depends on people feeling isolated. So there's a particular flavor. If you were raised, particularly if you're a white person, as I am in the United States, there's a particular flavor of this isolation. And there are people in my life who are raised in other cultures that are much more, uh, that have different relationships around relationality who still suffer from the, de- the fundamental delusion of being separate. So it's, it's, I don't know if it's, totally universal <laughs> but it's widespread pain it's a right widespread root of our pain so the the converse of that is that the truth and reality is we're connected um, in the book um, the heart of understanding by Thich Han, I think I've talked about this before that he he does a really good job of we can look at, we can't see the totality of how we're connected, but we can certainly investigate some of the ways, you know, so he talks about like, if you look at this paper, you can see the sun in this paper. You can see the tree that it was. You can see the the lumber person who cut it down. You can, um, and the life of all of that here. And that's like a way of describing how to look at how connected, how we are connected. And it's a way to remedy um, a story of like, I'm here and that's paper and that's all it is, you know? (laughs) Versus like, actually, this depends on everything to arise, and so do I, and so do you, and so so does everything that's happening. So it's kind of abstract, you know, this idea of connection can feel abstract, but we can really, in our practice, it's really important, I think, to ongoingly investigate how, how it is and to wonder about it, like to wonder about the ways we're connected, about the ways we're impacted. And, and one of the ways we can do that is to, is to look at the delusion when it arises. And some of the markers of that delusion of separation are like control. Like I should, I'm going to make this happen. I did that. <laughs> Every, if Whenever that's happening, look for the delusion that's in that idea. Because whatever we are, you know, like I thought that, for example. I had a thought. It's mine. I did it. You know, that really leaves out. All the conditioning that makes me, all the genetics, all the stories, all the stuff, all the language itself is something, you know, even, in the, even when we're all by ourselves and we're just thinking, you know, no one else can hear this. We are still um, very much in relationship to gazillions of things. Um Other places we can, you know, again, like look for the ear markers of things like duality, right and wrong, good and bad, black and white, straight and queer, all, like male and female, all, all these dualities actually are oversimplifying. And that's another ear marker, I would say, of delusion when we oversimplify the world, when we can't tolerate the complexity of relationship of everything. And, you know, for the sake of lots of things, like, speaking. (laughs) We oversimplify things, um, but we can look at, we can investigate how that's forming us and shaping us. And then we can also investigate how that might be causing us some pain and suffering and other people in our lives. Next week, I'm going to go to um, California, to Greenbelt Farm, which is part of the San Francisco Zen Center, to co-lead a a second annual retreat for um, environmental activists. So the idea is so we like write grants to get funding for a retreat so that people who are frontline environmental activists can come and like, what from the Zen tradition can we offer that's supportive for a sustained engagement? Um, that's, and then and some ways I think that's part of why this idea of healing is really in my heart and in my mind. Because um, I'm always, it's very present for me, like how I feel uh, Zen practice to be super supportive uh, for a sustained engagement with the world, messy and very painful and difficult as it is. Um, and like, how to offer that to others? Like, what, what is it about Zen practice that keeps that that's supportive around like staying with our effort to uh, heal? And so, it's really healing is is this feeling and healing. You know, healing our planet. I went to a, a conference recently at the Union Theological Seminary for, for Clergy in New York um, at the Center for Earth Ethics, and it, which was looking at like, how can religious leaders help respond to climate catastrophe in our communities? And what was really moving to me was like the first half of the day, I would say, the emphasis was on, in some ways to me anyway, the emphasis was on um, creating networks of relationship to care for one another that we're there's a lot of educating about like here are the particular things that are going to happen in new york city you know it's an urban heat the word, urban heat island yeah yeah so like you know the city sucks in the heat there's already you know things are hotter the way that that's quite dangerous for human beings what it does um and also flooding and storms and what those do, and then in the response, I mean, we need to do many, many things, right? As human beings, we need to do many, many, many things. We need to not ever stop looking at the, is there another way we can help heal this? Um, but in our, um, in our collective karma, one of the things we can heal, or one of the things that seems like the root to me of the mess we're in is this delusion of separation. You know, the delusion of separation is a fundamental thing to people engaging in the world in this extractive and dominating ways. You can't do that when you feel connected. So, in preparation for that, I was reading an article that we were sharing with the group, maybe, or one of my co facilitators was basing something off of this. And it's written by Robin Wall Kimmerer. People know her work. She wrote Braiding Sweetgrass, or she's, she's well known for that. She's a um, botanist and a professor. Mm-hmm. And this article is from about, it was from 2017, so about seven years ago. Um, maybe some of you have come across it. It's called um, Speaking of Nature. And she, um, she's a brilliant teacher. She has um, Potawatomi heritage. So her grandfather was a Potawatomi indigenous person from Oklahoma. He was taken as a child from his home, like forcibly abducted from his family. And brought to Carlisle Boarding School, which was a was well, it's a big one. You know, a lot of uh, Indigenous kids were brought there, and uh, punished if he spoke Potawatomi language or or did anything that um, was from his culture. And so, in that very deliberate way, this his his original language and and culture was taken from him. And his granddaughter Robin Wall Kimmerer, one of her acts of repair is to learn Potawatomi, even though it's a challenging language to learn And She talks about it quite a bit in in Braiding Sweetgrass. And she talks about it in this um, article a little bit as well. One of the things I remember from reading Braiding Sweetgrass a few years ago was um, the the language is mostly verbs. So, um, you know, it's not like there's a bird. It's more like a bird is birding. I mean, I can't even say it in English, right? (laughs) And she contrasts it with English, which is uh, mostly nouns. It's mostly objects. It's mostly objectifying, actually. Um, and she does this exercise with um, undergraduate students who, they go, actually, they go to a, a graveyard, and they're being with the natural elements there. And she's asking them to look at how, what's the language in their mind around how they would describe things there. So, like, the bird, it's sitting in the tree, the, the tree. It's sitting, and she was noting that the it that that English conventionally applies to living beings that aren't human um, is de- is dehumanizing, even though that's not quite the word, is um, objectifying and um, alienating. And she's proposing um, a pronoun for living things, key, That uh, And I think this is great. It's gender neutral. And also it's... Um, Like, there's the word I want to say is rehumanizing, but it's like it's reconnecting. It gives, it gives language, it gives a possibility of language that reconnects. So, if, if a bird is in the tree singing, key is singing. The tree key is holding the bird. And the students, uh, a number of the students describe what it feels like to give life affirming. Um, pronoun to things and then they were asking like well this wind key and she's like yep mm-hmm. <laughs> and is the earth key oh yeah uh-huh. rocks mm-hmm. you know like all living things you know and this this is um this is deep you know she described it deep in potawatomi culture this is deep in buddhist tradition as well that all things have sentientness and in, in, or, or there's discussion you know <laughs> are rocks sentient um, and it's a it's not like a yes or no per se, but it's a question for us to ask. And it's for this same in some ways, I, I think it's for the same reason that um, we ask that question so that we can be in a relationship to rocks and not be separate, you know. Um, and then so key is the individual, and kin is the uh, collective. So we can try that. I've been trying that walking around. Yeah. just try it on. Um so a lot of students were very positive, like thank you. This is and, and it's not just it's important that it changes the mind, but it also changes the feeling and the body, the, the physical orientation of relationship. You know? Um so this is like to me, this is a, a practice of healing conditioning that has objectified. Um, there, as she also describes a student who, like, didn't say this in the group. You know, didn't say it directly, but in a in a reflection paper, was like, "This is stupid. <laughs> it's going to do anything." You know, that cynical voice. To me, this is very again, like, very much part of my culture. I've been trained in a cynical voice. It's like that's not going to do anything. Um, I don't really believe that voice, and it's not one that I am uh, much afflicted by actually, because I'm I'm pretty over it. <laughs> I feel, and actually, I feel supported in the Dharma to feel like, you know, everything matters. And actually, this does matter. And when we change our mind and we change the way we feel about things, that changes how we act. And that changes the world. Actually, our world is made up of our collective karma. It does matter what we think, even in the privacy of our own little minds. We do need to work on that. We need to take it seriously. What do I think? So she's like, you know, I see where that, person's coming from, and I disagree. <laughs> um, yeah. So what happens when, when we try something like this? We try looking at what have we been taught um, and, and what happens if I play with it and I, and I try to move it in the direction of healing? In that same fascicle, Dogen Zenji says, in that same writing where he says, to carry the self forward and experience myriad things as delusion, that myriad things come forth and experience themselves in awakening. He says to study, or maybe it's in the Fukunzani, but anyway, he says to study the Buddha way is to study the self. And, and then to study the self is to forget the self. Is, that's the translation. I hear that now as like, so, so look, we have this invitation in practice to really look at what is happening for us in our minds. How have our minds been shaped? Really pay attention. Look and see. When you feel like a... I, you know, I'll give an example from my own life of this in a minute. But like when even the little, the little weird feeling, the little niggling, the little discomfort, to me, those are like gold. <laughs> Look and see um, what's there. It, you know, usually there's a treasure trove of of like an enormity of conditioning underneath a subtle little feeling, yeah. and those subtle those subtle little feelings are. Uh, you know, there's there's big, obvious ways There's the that we can notice that we think we're separate from other people. You know, when we, like, well, it's us versus them. <laughs> That's a big one. <laughs> it's kind of obvious. Me versus the world. Mm. I'm on my own. But it's these subtle ones that I think are more tenacious, less likely to come all the way into our awareness, and actually um, more likely to be shaping our behavior. And so that's why we want to pay attention to them. So I can give a, a couple of examples that you know it's it's painful, <laughs> but I'll I'll share anyway. Um, recently, so we had COVID, and our this beloved community, this sangha, um, people were like, "Well, can we do, set up a meal train for you?" Because Charlie and I both had it in our son, and we were trying to keep it from our daughter, and uh, which we did successfully, and. Um, what, what also the Kristen who set up the meal train didn't know was like our drain was broken. <laughs> so we were like hauling buckets of water every time we had to wash the dishes. Like we were so sick and tired. And so this meal train came about and, uh, and it was like, I, I was like 95% like, yeah, this is so beautiful. You know, like what an awesome thing. Yeah. Like Kat made these spring rolls. Oh my God. It was like three days of like the, my favorite food. Um, and other folks. And and then there was also this donation part. And I was like, oh, my God, what's the donation part? Oh, my Like, why? <laughs> and Kristen was like, "There, you know, like so that you, you can get meals out, you can get groceries delivered, you could get, you know, supplements. And actually, it was a great gift, you know, but I had to notice that five percent was squirming and uncomfortable. So, again, like it's small. It, I am constantly advocating for people in the sangha to receive the care of one another. Like I I have to practice what I preach. Right. Like, and I was like, Oh, (laughs) thank you. You know, like I, and I was sincerely feeling thank you. But, and, and I was also, so, so I was like, okay, what is that? You know, or I felt supported in the Dharma be like, what is actually happening? And when I took the lid off of that discomfort, it was just, the the level of um training that i've had and and again like very underground around relationality as like almost like adversarial and transactional was breathtaking you know for me even though i've been looking you know I was like whoa and um and then underneath that so there, that was sort of a top layer underneath that was how vulnerable it is to receive care and underneath that was like was like this, actually, I feel like I got down to a very tender place of like, oh, I've developed all this stuff as protection. Like, oh, the circumstances of my life and, and my cultures have um, trained me to believe that I am the only one I can rely on. And, and that there, it has served me, actually. There was this way that I was like, okay, maybe because I was so sick, you know, <laughs> I was just like, I didn't have the energy to get all fired up. I was like, all right. <laughs> yeah, I carry that. And, um, and so then it was like, and so can I just open my heart and receive this love and care, even the monetary parts of it? Like, just let that come be a gift to me. And then we got, and actually then someone gave us the gift of information. Like, here's a protocol you can do. That's like an anti-inflammatory. And then I could unhesitatingly buy these expensive supplements. (laughs) And it was like, can I receive that? Can I receive it? Can I let it? And then can I like, let it move out for me? Could I be in a, in a. Yeah, to me, when I picture healing, it's like circulation. Wounding feels like cutting, you know, like cutting off, constricting, uh, tightening, um, removing, isolating, separating. Um, all things that are healing feel like, like that, you know, and then flow is going. And, it's not, and then it's not personal, you know, because actually like the next week somebody else needed a meal train and people showed up for that too. And I could, ju- you know, it's like, can I participate? and this flow of connection. And I, I, yeah, I've been looking at some other uh, conditioning around um, being separate. Like in my, recently I came across this, this delusion I carry of, uh, with my family, because we live in a family. I, I'm a parent, there are young people in my field. Um, young people don't, for the most part, don't like reality engage with material things the same way adults do like my son the other day he wanted to chuck something up into the fan actually he wanted to stick his hand up into that ceiling fan and I was like I understand that impulse but I don't want you to do that because I don't want to buy another one <laughs> like it's really just comes down to like you know I'm feeling strained financially don't stick your hand up I, it wasn't even like his hand you know I should have been like oh, <laughs> And I could just feel the legacy of all the parents, all the adults around me, like, don't touch that, don't break it, don't do, you know, and the, because, because of the strain, you know, and, um, and, and so there's this, and so there can be this strain, and again, it's like, right below the consciousness of like, this is not how I would do things, you know, like, this is not how, I wouldn't leave that sponge there wet and upside down, it's gross, you know, and because bacteria, and, you know, it's not the way the kids are thinking, and, and I think, um, when I, because I've been extracting these things about being separate, it was like, again, I could see that almost like adversarial feeling. It's I I, I don't want to say it actually out loud because I feel ashamed of it in a way, but then I'm like, no, no, no. I don't want to feel ashamed of this because this wasn't mine. This was handed to me, this idea of like, we're opposed to each other. And actually the truth is like, I want to live with my kids. I don't like it when we're not around each other. I, I prefer that. And one of the things that comes with that is like, gross sponges and like breaking things <laughs> and realizing like, Oh yeah, that no, that I choose this life of connection of like intimate impact. I, I choose that actually. I prefer that. This, I keep saying to her like, Oh, I'm living the dream. <laughs> I think I'm like suffering and actually just like with just this adjustment, I'm living the dream. This is how I want to live my life. And, and I think all these things, you know, all these ways of, of, bringing forward um, our discomforts and, and our mind, what is happening in our mind. One last thing I want to be sure to name was a couple of weeks ago, for those of you who are here, or I think there's probably a recording of it, um, Chen Shin Han was here in conversation with Ryan about her book, um, One Long Listening. Um, and Chen is also the author of Be the Refuge, which is the book that we're collectively reading as a sangha. So I invite you to do that if you're interested in that this summer. Summer reading. Um, um, Chen is a, a chaplain and Buddhist practitioner. And in my opinion, like a wonderful teacher, Dharma teacher in the sense that her, yeah, that's her, her, her Dharma offering is um, really impactful. One of the things she's with several other people is, is really leading in the United States. Actually people are doing this in lots of places, but Chen together with Duncan, Rick and Williams and, and funny Sue. Uh, have our leading momentum around reclaiming um, Asian-American experience in Buddhism. And then like particularly in um, convert, what we call convert Buddhist sanghas. So sanghas like Brooklyn Zen Center. This is a good example of a convert Buddhist sangha where uh, most people, not everyone, most people in our sangha were not born into Buddhism. Um, I spent a lot of my years in training at the San Francisco Zen Center. So, like my my foundational Buddhist life was at the San Francisco Sun Center, and um, there was a feeling that this the pain of that erasure was was there, but it I didn't I but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. You know, friends who were people of color, particularly friends who were Asian American, would be like, "Do you see this?" <laughs> and then I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I can I can see that." This whole community was actually founded as a way to kind of um it it, this, it was founded as a way to kind of to make separation between uh the Japanese American community that that the founding teacher was a part of and white practitioners who just weren't able to mesh and it you know it, it's important to name uh both sides were like happy about the separating <laughs> sort of and and there also was an erasure of that being foundational peace that makes sense. like and and one of the things i feel like um is an essential healing in, in our Sangha and in many Sanghas in the United States is to, bring, is to bring forward the pain of erasure of Asian American experiences in Buddhism. The way that, and in, I remember one of the, when I was first hearing this described by people, um, like awareness of internment, for example, in, in World War II, where people were persecuted, particularly for being Buddhist. The first people who were actually brought in by the FBI were Buddhist priests. And that, and there's like this, you know, again, like, so there's a, there's a fact and then behind it is this like mountain or, you know, like enormous iceberg of cultural reality around colonialism, around Christian domination, around othering, for example, in the United States, people who are Buddhists. And I was, remember hearing someone describe like, it's who's an Asian American, like, it's pretty irritating. There's a lot of white people like getting tattoos of like, you know, characters, I'm one of these white people, I have a character in my life, so I'm just naming people like me, um, you know, and Buddhist sutras and, and Kuan Yin's and stuff where, you know, just a generation ago, people had to hide every marking of their Buddhist identity um, bec- because the, the nation was putting people into prisons because of that, right? Like, so whole families were in prison and lost everything. So So and one of the things that Chen Chen said, in, uh, or, or one of the passages that they brought forward, Chen Chen was talking about um, realizing that she had an idea of a, what a good Buddhist was. And when she rea- when she looked closely, she realized, oh, like what I thought it was to be a good Buddhist was to be a white meditator. And she's a, a Chinese American. And and it really, I wasn't here because I had COVID. <laughs> and I was home and I actually, I was like, <laughs> like it's something about it just like punched me. And I realized, um, first of all, how painful, like that is, like that pain of that, and it's just so weird in a way, right? Like I am a white meditator, Um, and so I don't think, in some ways, like I'm not the person to lead this conversation, but I am a person to lift up this conversation. This is a part of how we heal these the the pains that have been overlooked, the ways we have thought about being separate. Get them where we can see them, you know. And then not by ourselves, I think that's another important piece. If we try to come at healing, if we try to come at healing, a delusion of separate self, as a separate person, <laughs> it's not going to work. So that what's really you know kind of exciting is be in con- we can be in conversation with each other, we can be in relationship with each other, and that that actually gives us um, just in the modality, we're already challenging this idea that we're separate from each other. Thanks. I just want to say one more story. Because um, I do have questions. <laughs> um, and comments. Um, <clears throat> I was remembering recently and talking with somebody of this story of, so uh, people are familiar with Avalokiteshvara, this, the images of Avalokiteshvara. So it's a being with 12 heads and th- th- a fan of like a thousand hands. And, do people know this image? It's a being, and she has many heads, but there's like one main head and several heads. Of, you can actually look at this and not realize that's what you're seeing, and then it looks like sort of like a fan or a halo. But what these are is a thousand hands, and each hand has an eye. So this is a this is a, a visual teaching of how compassion manifests in the world. But there's a story about how she got all of her heads, which is that. Um, so bodhisattvas like Avalokiteshvara, who's the embodiment of compassion, they work uh, in, in Buddhist cosmology over lifetimes. They are developing this, their effort. And uh, she was working over lifetimes and lifetimes and um, got, really, got really concentrated on like, I'm gonna get everybody out of hell, the hell realms. I'm gonna empty the hell realms I'm gonna help them all get out. And, um, and one day, and I think she was accompanied by Amitabha Buddha, a, a very kind and patient Buddha. She actually did it. She got everybody out of the hell realm. So she's watching. So this is where I, I, I'm being interpreted now about the one head, 12 heads, but I think it works. <laughs> so she's watching all the people leave the hell realms. And she's like, Yes, you know, I did it. It's done. <laughs> and then Amitabha Buddha was like, You might want to look over there. And then she looks over there, and more people are flooding into the hell realms because. Karma's like this, actually, because, because healing's like this, because it's cyclical, because it's not, like, we're never done, you know, and um, her pain was so intense that her head actually exploded, or one version of the story, her head, like, like it blew her mind, literally, like, it blew her brain, um, and then Amitabha Buddha kind of puts her head back together, but now with, with 12 heads, and to me, that's, like, it's, this, it's actually a beautiful image of, like, now, she, was a 11? 11 heads, including Amitabha? Okay, he's on the top. <laughs> okay, 11 heads. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta be clear. Don't get it wrong. She's got a lot of heads. Um, she can see multidimensionally. Like, to me, this is a really important teaching. She no longer can see unilaterally. She can only see w- in lots of directions. So she can no longer get confused by... this could be finished, or I've done this, or, you know, um, yeah, that suffering is bad. (laughs) There's this multidimensionality to how she sees things, and then that allows her. That's the, Amitabha Buddha, in his compassion, gave her the body she needed to continue to be compassionate in the world. That allows her to do that. Yeah, so I offer that, you know, that's like, and and her, her 11-headed being is a healed being. It's a being that sees from this perspective of connection and the complicatedness of things. Um, she can't see singularly anymore. And then that's, a, and that, that's essential to her being able to sustain her effort in this world of suffering.